0: or go to FailYourWay.com for more info. Now back to the show. Make no mistake. If you're an author, you're an entrepreneur. You're selling the world on your book, aren't you? Of course, it's not as easy as launching a business and then tossing any old book up on Amazon. That's why I help entrepreneurs publish books on the specific topic and in the specific way that will launch or grow their businesses. Welcome to Entrepreneur Publishing Academy with your professor, Anna David. Guys, it's Anna here. So how can we earn twice as much in half the time with ease and joy while serving the highest good? Wow. I've got the answer for you. I'm excited to put a new podcast on your radar. Maybe it's not new to you. Maybe you know it already. It's Free Time with Jenny Blake, where Jenny shares systems and strategies to help free your mind to do more of your best work, powered by delightfully tiny teams. She's the award-winning author of three books, including Pivot, The only move that matters is your next one and her latest free time. Lose the busy work, love your business. Side note about Jenny. I've been following her work for years. I don't know that there's anyone out there who provides better systems in clearer ways. I'm a big fan and I have a feeling you will be too, especially episodes 96, where she shares free time book sales stats one month post-launch. Now you're interested in that. And episode 84, sprinkling the first 1,000 serendipity seeds of a launch. There's also a Notion walkthrough for organizing her writing process. Yes, in episode 36 on Shaping Big Ideas. So go subscribe now so you don't miss a single episode at pod.link slash free time. That's pod.link slash free time. You'll be able to download the podcast and subscribe on any of the platforms you can also take the free time quiz at itsfreetime.com slash quiz that's itsfreetime.com slash quiz thank me later well hello there welcome to entrepreneur publishing academy In case I forgot to tell you recently, it's brought to you by Book Elevator Pitch. And if you are like, what in God's name is a Book Elevator Pitch? I have an amazing thing to tell you, which is that you can find out the answer by going to bookelevatorpitch.com. And bonus, if you're writing a nonfiction book, you need it. So this is a very unusual episode because I have a big publisher as my guest, which I've never done and um he's a controversial publisher i first found out about him because um i read a story in vanity fair that was about how he and his company skyhorse had picked up books that were dropped by other publishers when um the people uh got let's just say canceled and including woody allen including the biographer the person who wrote the biography for Philip Roth. And, um, and I uh, get nervous talking about these things because they are controversial inherently. And because we live in such a reactionary society that if one doesn't subscribe to the exact belief someone else has, um, then they can get uh, sort of torn and torn and feathered. Oh my God. The big question is, am I going to keep recording when potion by dualipa just played and the answer is yes perhaps that meant meat was meaningful uh but the point is the point is that i um i agree that free speech is important i believe that people should be able to say how they think and feel even if it is not how i think and feel i think it's important and so i support what he's done though possibly people listening to this may not and that is just that is just ha- how it is um we also talked about uh he knows a lot about publishing so we also talked about what media appearances can really move the needle we talked about the new york times list uh and how many books do you need to get on it we talked about when books that he has published have been um yeah, things have changed online. Um, that uh don't seem right. Oh, this is a good one. So I hope you will join me in welcoming Tony Lyons. By the way, if you want the show notes, uh, which includes a full transcript, links. Uh, by the way, Skyhorse takes submissions, so uh, he talks about that. Go to legacylaunchpadpub dot slash blog slash lions. That's L Y O N S. Now please join me in welcoming. Tony Lyons. Thanks for doing this, Tony.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me.
0: Long overdue. Um, as I was telling you, I was starting to tell you, I'm a I'm a great admirer of your um, let me just say, audacity, your bravery in the face of cancel culture. And as someone who lives in Los Angeles and has grown up a certain way and has certain beliefs, it actually like literally I'm scared talking about this because i'm it's it's a crazy time we live in so um the reason i'm saying this is that your uh company has published uh many books that um the more traditional publishers have um either been scared of or literally canceled and you have scooped them up let's talk about that
1: yeah first of all i mean i would just like to say that you know, in in many cases, we publish books on both sides of yeah. the same question. Yeah. So what I what I really like about that is that you know if you're going to cancel somebody, I think that you ought to at least give them an opportunity to give their point of view. Because how does how do viewers or how do readers or you know people watching movies or how does anybody figure out whether they agree with something or not? So we don't want to live in a world where people just tell us what to do or what to think or what to read, we want to hear arguments. So yeah. make your best argument. And if you you know, have a better argument, you don't need censorship. You yeah. don't need cancel culture. You don't need to de-platform people. I mean, why take somebody off Twitter?
0: Yeah. You know,
1: Even the president, even if you hate the president, even if it just gives you this sort of visceral reaction and you just think, I'd do anything to not have to listen to his tweets in the morning. You know, think about what it means if you can kick a president off of Twitter. You know, that's the ultimate power then, that you can just silence anybody. And then once that power is kind of created, how how do you ever rein that in? So how do we know that it's not the government deciding that they want to go to the Iraq war? Right. And they're going to just pull all the strings. They're going to use a kind of power that no dictator in history has had—a right. a kind of like power for propaganda and for censorship and for deplatforming, where they can take sort of like uh, a CIA official and and out her, or you know they can control what people find on Google or. Amazon can not allow you to advertise for a for a certain book or they can actually take the likes off a book. I mean just this the 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 granular nature of it like they can get so deep into censoring something because yeah. they've been told to so the government can kind of collude with big tech companies to get out a certain message and you know there's this great document that was put out by the Surgeon General in in the fall of 2021 and what I mean by great, I mean it's a scary. It's it's like reading 1984. Right. So it it it's it's about um, countering health misinformation. Sounds like a great thing, you know. You you know you want to know the truth, you you know, so that you don't make bad decisions, right? But the but the scary part of it is that it, it's all about strategy, and it's and there's no definition of what misinformation is. Right. So so the problem is that misinformation is a great word you know it sounds like you're being helped so you have misinformation or disinformation or you know uh violence or or you call somebody like a domestic terrorist or you call them a conspiracy theorist but you know many of the great revelations that book publishers or investigative journalists have made were conspiracy theories till they were proven true right so right. you know what i think we need in this country is as much speech as possible as much open dialogue as possible and then people really know what they're deciding on people really know why they're making decisions it's not just based on on what they've been pushed towards or threatened towards or forced towards anyway i could go on and on but i'm going to try to have some dialogue here cuz i yes. talk about dialogue and debate
0: Exactly. I must dialogue too. Although this is one where I really do want you to talk a lot because I because I I just find it very fascinating. And I've never had someone like you on the show. And, you know, I I think about it, um, you know, like I said, I live in Los Angeles. I didn't quite understand the bubbleness of it. I wouldn't if I didn't have this entire community of entrepreneurs, many of whom live in Texas and Arizona and other places, where I, you know, because and, and and then i think you know so i just sort of thought well everybody smart thinks this one thing of course that's what everyone thinks then i'm like wait a minute i'm seeing these friends they're very smart and they think this and i think it was the moment of the um of the artist leaving spotify because of what joe rogan said where i'm like what is what is actually going on here um and and so you have not been afraid to speak out about this ever or have you?
1: Yeah, so I don't feel afraid of publishing any of these kinds of books and of saying the kinds of things that I that I say, but I mean it's for me it's more that I'm more afraid of the alternative, which All I right. think is is a is living in a country or in a world where I can't give my point of view and where people can't publish books on certain things or they can't make comments about certain things. And I think anything or I would say just about anything ought to be on the table. But there's so much now that's not. I mean, there's yeah, so yeah. much where if you say something that's just a little bit off the narrative, then suddenly you're this terrible person. So, you know, we are. Uh, well, let's see. How would I would like to say this? Well, there's a book that I'm considering publishing, so I'm, I'm not going give, to give details on it. But uh, this this book has to do with the transgender swimmer issue you know which i think is is a fascinating question you know so you've got swimmers who are uh born i mean i, I don't i don't know the right lingo so i'm going to you know put myself in a bad position quickly but i would i would just say that that there are people who have trained their entire lives who are smaller uh weaker physically um for whatever reason you know and they are the best in the world at what they they do. And then you get somebody else who comes in who weighs 50 pounds more, who has much more muscle mass and beats them easily. You know, so I think, you know, I'm I'm as a publisher not really taking the role of trying to tell anybody what is is reasonable there. But I think at the very least it's an issue that, that people can talk about right. and that they can wrestle with. And so, you know, where I come out on, it doesn't really matter.
0: Right. And, and I think, um, Oh, you're like that. Somebody Keep going. Arguing.
1: Yeah. So, so what I think, and, and what really matters to me is that it has to be okay to have that conversation and to have uncomfortable conversations, And if you're going to be a publisher, you know, in the first place you ought to be willing and and excited to get involved in those complicated conversations. Those conversations that people don't really want to have at dinner parties because somebody's going to, you know, throw their drink and march out. But, you know, why do you want to publish a book? Why do you want to read a book that just has everything that you agree with it? I mean, what's the possible point of that? You would have a better use for your time. Yeah. So you should be reading things often that you disagree with where, you know, and, and if your position is really strong, then it can stand up to other arguments. You know, you don't have to then say, you know, my position is so weak, because censorship really is all about weakness. Mm-hmm. It's about not, not feeling mm-hmm. that you can make a stronger argument that will convince people. So you wanna force people to see things your way, or you wanna forbid people from reading certain things because they're so dangerous. And so, you know, I don't think that that's true and I don't think that that's good. And and I and I think the world is better with as much dialogue, as much conversation, as much competing ideas as possible and that the marketplace of ideas is a is a pretty good place for people to kind of come together. And and that now we have kind of two americas. Yeah. And, and I think lots of that comes out of this sort of like, well, we're only going to watch certain TV shows. We're only going to read certain books. We're going to try to stifle any kind of other point of view. And then how do you ever get closer to the other side? Because you you can't hear their point of view. Yeah. You're, you're, you're just subjected yeah. to propaganda from your own side, from your own people telling you that these people are evil. But yeah. you can bet that their people are saying the same thing, that that you're evil. Yeah. And it, it just can't be true that kind of half the country is is brilliant and wise, and the other half, they're all it stupid. Is. yeah. I mean, that just isn't true. It's, it's convenient for both sides to think of the other side like that. But I would like to, as a publisher, be in a position of seeing more possibilities for, you know, people coming together.
0: And so um, how would you say traditional publishing is broken today?
1: Yeah, so I... Th- I I think that part of it is that um is that there's so much fear of any kind of controversy so that you know you can have a big publisher like hachette uh, you know sign up a book by Woody Allen that they really like that they say they really like uh that even you know a couple of weeks before they cancel it they come out and they say look we're really sorry people disagree you know we we think people ought to have the right to disagree. We think, you know, it's fine that people go outside and, and pick it. We're we're publishers, we're we're for free speech, but we're still going to publish it because we we really like it. We signed it up for a reason. Nothing's changed since we signed it up. But then then the stakes just got higher. Yeah. And so the stakes got to, well, sort of like you you said, you know, where uh, some musicians started to pull out of Spotify people started to say well we're going to pull out of Hachette. yeah and so people are not going to work there they're not going to publish there and uh so I I think the problem with caving to that sort of pressure is that there's no logical end to it right. you know is is that you sort of created a monster there then where anybody who has a little bit more power can just, you know, decide for you what you're going to do, what you're going to say, what you're going to publish, and so I'm more afraid. To get back to your question, I'm more afraid of that kind of world yeah. than I am of any 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 consequences. I mean, right after I published the Woody Allen book, uh, I was contacted by Vanity Fair, yeah, and I was and I was thinking, well, you know, what's my punishment going to be? There were a lot of very angry, powerful people thinking we worked so hard to get this book canceled. Um, and they then said, well, what did we really win by getting it canceled? So Skyhorse published the book two weeks earlier than Hachette had planned to publish it. So all of that work that they did helped them in no way at all. So there were people who were angry and, you know, I was the face of that decision. So, uh, Vanity Fair wrote an article on me, hard to, for me to imagine that that article came out of anything other than my decision to publish the uh, Woody Allen book, which is uh, apropos of nothing. So my my feeling there is that, um, is that I don't really care that they wrote that article. But I was fascinated that, that that would happen because nobody at Vanity Fair knows who I am. Nobody at Vanity Fair knows who Skyhorse Publishing is. I mean, none of the readers there. Um, they didn't review our books. I I didn't know anybody there socially. There was no connection whatsoever. There's nothing in it for them. They're not going to make any money off writing that kind of story. They're not mm. going to get more readers. So why would they do that story? So the only logical thing for me is that it's it's kind of a punishment. It's a it's a part of the whole sort of cancel culture that. And then they called it something it was a really terrible title i uh, can't quite think of it but it was uh but it, w- it was just sort of an awful title that made skyhorse look like this terrible place but then you read this endless article that took them months and months where they interviewed so they they treated me like i was somebody world famous you know that they would want to spend literally hundreds of thousands of dollars researching and you know interviewing people to find out what the backstory is. But the whole story is that they were upset that I published Woody Allen's book. Yeah. You know, which is uh, you know, one sentence.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. I reread it this morning. And <laughs> um, you know, I, so I started working in media in the, you know, 90s. Um the workplaces I've been in. I've had phones thrown at me. I've been like, I'm trying to discern what is the disturbing part. And there's even this thing about Oliver Stone. I'm like, I know I live in Hollywood. Like this is, uh, this is what is, is the sort of abuse that I have put up with in the workplace. And then I hear about things and I hear comments and I, I absolutely, my heart goes out to women who have felt, um, who have have been in terrible, terrible situations. I have been too. When I hear about situations that do not sound terrible in their description, and I am meant to have a lot of sympathy for it, it just makes me feel like, what world am I living in? Mm. Um, so so yeah, it's it's a fascinating story uh, that ultimately didn't say very much. And um, and um, did you know that's what was going to happen? It was probably worse than you expected.
1: The story. Well, so there's 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 sort of a playbook for all of these kinds of stories, which I didn't I didn't really know at the time. But I, you know, but I'm but I'm perfectly fine with um which is that they sort of start off by telling you, oh, you've built up this great company. We're so impressed with it. Uh, You know, what are your favorite books? Uh, You know, uh, what drove you to start a publishing company? Uh, How have you been so successful? All of those kinds of things. And then, you know, they go on with that sort of stuff for an hour or two hours, and then they get into something else. Mm. Um, And then the whole story is the other thing, you know, which is which is fine it's a it's a journalist strategy um so was it worse than i thought it would be uh no it was exactly as i as i thought it would be uh once i really got into it because i i decided to engage because i'd never been in that position before and part of what i like about being a publisher is this incredible journey that i feel like i go on with with each book or with with each uh issue that that comes up and uh, so so this was just another part of that journey. and I, and I wanted to kind of embrace it fully mm. and and talk to them as much as they wanted to talk. And we wrote, you know, dozens of letters back and forth where they, you know, made certain allegations that they had heard and from 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 somebody. and, and then I said, no, 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 that, that's not the story. Here's a document. Here's another person you should talk to. But it was really interesting, like I said, because I'm nobody in the publishing field. I mean, in the sense that, None of their readers know who I am. None of their readers care about who I am. Almost none of our books would even appeal to any of their readers. So what's the interest that they'd be Mm. willing to spend so much money on other than to sort of punish somebody?
0: Anna here. Now, are you an entrepreneur who wants to write and publish a book about your own failures turned successes? Well, good news. That's what my company, Legacy Launchpad, does. Find out more at LegacyLaunchpadpub.com. That's legacylaunchpadpub.com. Now, should you do a book, you ask? I think so. Why? Because you're worth it. Now, back to the show. And do you think it works as, like, I mean, this is, I know we're not using names like Ronan Farrow, look what we did. Like they get points for that, or it's just they're mad and they want revenge?
1: I I think that they, that, whoever sort of started it and, you know, it, it, it might've been Ronan Farrow. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know the details. So, um, but I, but I think that that's the kind of thing that they just sort of thought about doing passed it from one writer to another, but they really wanted to kind of get it done. And then I think, uh, it just took much more time than, than they thought. And they probably thought of canceling it. I mean, I've, I've been involved in some long complicated projects Books that have gone on for years. Uh, one that was, I think, seven years. And, and there was a co-writer, and then the co-writer dropped out and wanted to write a separate book. You know, so it was it was a project like that that I just think went on and on for, for a while. Um, but um, but it but it was fascinating for me just to kind of take part in it and 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 also just to see what they were gonna possibly come up with, you know, because I had I had no idea what their. What their conclusions were going to be. It was clear that that they were biased, that they were trying to get a specific story. Um, but I was curious what they were going to really get, and and you know, so you you tell me, what did they get?
0: It was a lot of words, and I was trying to understand what was super interesting about them. Um, I don't know if you read it, and you were like, wow, I'm a lot more interesting than I than I thought. Like they, you know, really made a lot out of um well I didn't know I didn't come at it from your perspective of knowing oh this is specifically about the Woody Allen book I figured it was about a, a bunch of the books honestly mm. um but it's interesting there was a thing this week and now I can't remember but a Cuban writer did you hear about this publishing scandal this week no tell me he, I,
1: I've I, been I, really really busy with a, with a couple of books that are coming out later this fall
0: Okay, I'm going to – I will not be able to – I'll speak ignorantly about it now be, because I don't really remember the details, but I can send you afterwards. Basically, what I think happened, Cuban writer said something about woke white women in publishing who work in publishing, and there was a huge Twitter drama, and uh, a lot of smart people are going, thank God – it was a Cuban guy, I'm pretty sure. Thank God somebody said this. Anyway, I'll send you the stories afterwards. Oh, great. But, um, great. But so in terms of publishing, I mean, because the way traditional publishing works is um, there there are no, there's no research, there's no studies, you know, there was this trial a couple months ago that sort of like put it out into the world, what people who work in publishing know, which is that it's all guesswork. Do you think that's true?
1: Do I think it's all guesswork? I mean, I, I mean, I think that it is true and I've and I've, and I've looked up lots of the old, you know, book publishing cases where, you know, there's a question of, does a publisher have a duty to sort of, you know, really dig into the details of each book that they publish? Not really practical. You know, you're sort of uh, engaging the author to be the expert. So you might, you know, read a book for libel, but you might not be able to verify every statement in, you know, hundreds and hundreds of you know, four or 500 page books. And so so there is no legal obligation to do that as a as a book publisher.
0: But yes, true. And I remember with a million little pieces, that was right when I sold my first book that 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 came up. But but I mean, in terms of book deals, in terms of what's going to be successful, in terms of the madness of how it works, do you think, you know, if we're talking about like the big five, do you think it makes sense how it works?
1: No, I mean, I, I mean, I think that the big five publishers now are 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 generally just playing it really safe, so they you know have a lot of money, they have a lot of power, and they buy the biggest books by the most famous people and they make you know eighty or ninety percent of their money from those top titles, and many of them are you know second or third or fourth you know books from people whose prior books sold really really well so so it's become much more of a science I mean I, I mean, I know that in the uh, in the in the recent court hearings, uh, there was lots of talk of of publishing being really random. Um, I'm not sure, you know, what the what the logic there was, but but you had people from from the biggest publishing companies in the world saying that uh, that it's it's just sort of the luck of the draw that that you can pay five million dollars for a book and it can sell twenty thousand copies, you can pay nothing for a book and it can sell millions. Um, I don't really believe that that that's the way publishing is run now. I I believe that the bigger companies generally when they're not sort of censoring certain topics are are, you know, run by people who have MBAs and, you know, are really good with numbers and are making really smart business decisions, not not really publishing decisions, you know, where I don't I don't think the top people at most of the big 5 publishers are 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 reading many books yeah. i think that they're looking at at spreadsheets so you know and that's you know they're running billion dollar companies that you know there's a logic to that um but on the on the censorship side i i find it to be just just sort of a really bad time for book publishing and and i and i think we're 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 going to come out of it um i mean i think that uh, that a lot of the Top people at big publishing companies don't don't really want to do it, and and they do it mainly when they feel forced to. So I don't think those decisions are coming from from the most powerful people at the company. I think they're coming from from other people who are you know putting them in a position where it's a bad business choice to make the decision that they want to make.
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, tell me where Skyhorse fits into that.
1: Well on the uh on the censorship side it's it, it's very easy to see that uh you know we are going to keep publishing books that are going to make some people angry you know that are going to uh sort of uh, uh, stir things up um many many cases where you know we're we're going to publish on both sides of the same thing you know we did some some books during the pandemic that were censored uh we did a book called the Case for vaccine mandates, and then we did the case against vaccine mandates. And the case against was censored everywhere and uh, was taken down from all kinds of platforms. So we had a whole bunch of cases like that where we're doing both sides, and where the other side of the argument was was just you know made to disappear. Um, so I so I think we're going to keep fighting those kinds of battles, and we've been pretty successful in uh, in, in pushing that.
0: Um, in in terms of that, is it literally like on the platforms, like you'll see it's there on Amazon? Um, I don't know if we can name companies and then it's gone the next day, something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So there definitely were plenty of cases where things just, just disappeared. and could not be
0: found on those platforms anymore.
1: No. And there, I mean, there's been a ton of that during this, this last two and a half year period where, you know, if you counter something that's been put out by the government, you know, the decisions were often kind of made by uh algorithms. So, I don't think there's anybody to to talk to or to argue with um but you know, there've been been some really really terrible things have have gone on. So, there've been, you know, lots of books where where the positive likes on Amazon have been taken off. And I had I had never heard of that. I mean, so I so I say lots of uh, lots of books, and I assume that it's kind of a it's a program that is supposed to fight misinformation. Um,
0: so you mean reviews and, or just like five stars or whatever?
1: No, I'm saying that the actual likes. So so we had one one book by Robert F Kennedy Jr. called "The Real Anthony Fauci." Yeah, you know, really provocative book. But, you know, it had 2,194 citations. It had a blurb by a Nobel Prize winning scientist. So, you know, lots of people disagreed with it, but they didn't disagree with it on the merits. Like there was nobody, no newspaper, no TV show came out and said, oh, there's a citation on page 85 that that is wrong or, or that there's a, you know, it claims that there's a peer reviewed study, but there isn't. You know, there was none of that, that, it was just that it was taken down from, from platforms. So um, so there was a whole kind of program for books like that, which I think was sort of scary to watch in action. And and that was that you would see that the author would get a hit piece written on, you know, him or her um, in in the New York Times or in, you know, Vanity Fair or in many other places uh, but there'd be no review of the book, even if the book was selling really well. So that was a book that sold more than a million copies in in the three different formats. And uh, it got no reviews in any major newspaper in the country. Then the New York Times, in its, its first week, it far outsold any other hardcover nonfiction book uh, by you know tens of thousands of of copies. But the New York Times made another book the, the number one title, because they just didn't like that book. I mean, that's my analysis of it. There's no other argument that I think makes sense. Um, but, but it I, but was I got on the list.
0: It. it was on the New York Times list. It just wasn't the number one spot.
1: Right, right. so they made it number five. Um, but they made their, their own book, which was the 1619 Project, which was written by a New York Times writer uh, about a project that was funded by the New York Times. So you get the feeling that when it comes to books that the New York Times doesn't like or conservative books or just any kind of narrative that they're not, you know, on the same page with, they are going to uh, treat it differently. So it, it's not really just a bestseller list. It's a
0: it's a yeah. kind of a
1: New York Times recommended reading list. So, you know, people in, in publishing know that, but the general public doesn't. And- well,
0: the Exorcist writer sued them, William Blatty. Because not The Exorcist, but Legion, his other book was, but, and they and they came to court and they said, hey, this is actually an editorial thing. And the court sided with them.
1: Yeah, I don't think that the court should have, you know, that they're calling it a bestseller list. They're not calling it a recommended reading right,
0: list. Right, I mean, right, right. Um, um, so, but, okay, but I also did want to talk about, okay, so Skyhorse, how many books do you acquire um, a, a year? Um, do you agent, can people just submit? How does that work?
1: Yeah, sure. So we uh, publish something like five hundred books a year now. The most that we ever published in a, in a year was just under twelve hundred. Uh, that I think was too too many. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was just just too too much work. And I and I get involved to some extent in in each of those. So if you try to, I mean, to many of them, it was a very very small involvement, yeah. Yeah. but some involvement. And and if you think about that, that's you know four books each day, or you know. Three and a half books each day, uh, that that's just not going to work. Um, and I and I like to be more involved. So now we're 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 going to publish you know something around four hundred books per per year, and uh, uh, and I'm and I'm happy with with that number. Uh, so yeah, and and anybody can can send us books. We you know probably a third of our books come from agents, and you know something like a third are books that we conceive of and and we seek people out uh, where where we think it's a topic that that we'd like to publish a a book on. And then and then about a third are are from just people sending us books.
0: Yeah. And they can just do it online. Right. They could just go to the website and send books. Yeah. And I did want to talk about, this has been fantastic. I did want to get into this conversation. You and I had this other time about media and, you know, I, I, you know, will always proclaim like, you know, TV doesn't sell books. It gives a lot of credibility, but it doesn't really sell books. And I said that to you and you were like, well, it really depends. And you had these two examples. What were those?
1: Uh, You know, what I, what I think really sells books now. and, And we've seen that for many of our books is, you know, a mailing list that the author or that some um, organization has put together, and that if, if if you write a certain kind of letter, and there's a you know a strong enough nexus between your mailing list and and the topic of the book, we've we've had cases where where a mailing list of you know five hundred thousand people has sold you know thirty or forty thousand books. Right, and that's that's a really that's a shocking correlation there because. You know, as as somebody in publishing, you know, people outside of publishing might think, well, 30,000 books isn't that many books. But, you know, uh, to to put it into context for for viewers, the number 15 book on The New York Times bestseller list about uh, at the end of uh, of the summer was around 3000 copies.
0: Wow. Wow. So,
1: I mean, there were there were other books that didn't make the bestseller list that sold 30,000 or 40,000. Uh, but that that's the story that we've already covered. So but it is, you know, it, it can be three or four thousand copies to make the New York Times best bestseller list. So if so, if somebody has a mailing list and and they can sell 30,000 books, uh, you know, they can get on to certainly the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, USA Today, Publishers Weekly. Uh, and then then, you know, the Times is going to be a be a toss up.
0: Right, right. So newsletters are the most important. Um, most people obviously do not have five hundred thousand people on their newsletter sure. list, but there are, sure. you know, but but partnering with an organization is is a great or, way to do it. Or
1: ten different places. Or know? ten
0: different places, and so. But what TV shows um, or other media outlets do you think can move the needle?
1: So I think that really targeted podcasts are probably the best way to sell books now. I have watched books. On a minute by minute basis for sales through Amazon, and I've watched uh, while somebody was on a podcast and sort of looked at at what they said and mm-hmm. then how many copies sold in the next sixty seconds or two minutes or three minutes. And I and I find that sort of thing. I mean, I'm not a numbers person really, but but I find that to be really fascinating. And uh, you know, so that was if people described their book in a, in a way that really made somebody take action. Yeah. So, you know, part of the problem is that if you go on the Today Show and it's a workout book and you, you know, do two or three different ways to work out, I think people watching that just take that as content and they just sort of say, thank you. And they write a couple of notes and they're done. They don't. They don't want to read a three hundred page book with step by step things in it. They see how you do a sit up and they're and they're happy. Right. So so I think that when you're dealing with a podcast that's about something specific, um, you know, and and the person kind of teases what the book is all about, then I think there's a strong enough nexus that you might have a thousand people suddenly just click on their phones and and you know buy the book. And that I had I had never seen before, you know, even on on television, I mean, I've seen cases where there were ten, 20, thirty thousand copies sold from a really big TV show. Um, but that's really, really rare now.
0: Are there specific podcasts that you can um, say or really can make a big difference? I mean, t- like somebody had on the podcast said, something like a Tim Ferriss or Joe Rogan actually isn't good because it's cult of personality. Pe- the listeners care about them. They care less about the guest. Whereas something with like a sort of um, enthusiastic, inquisitive listenership, it might make a bigger difference.
1: Yeah. I would say that the more targeted, the better. So, yeah. you know, if it's somebody going on a Joe Rogan show that that really fits the Joe Rogan, you know, demographic really well. And it's something that he discusses all the time. And then somebody just nails that. And then Joe Rogan says, Hey, this is a book that every one of you ought to read. Then I think you're you're gonna sell a huge number of copies. I yeah. mean, he doesn't do that very often. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, there's nothing specific that I would that I would point to that I that I that I think is great in general. I think that there are hundreds of podcasts now, and, and that's a really nice thing. Yeah, because they're not hundreds of gigantic TV shows that you have any prayer of getting on. But there are hundreds and hundreds of podcasts that in your niche might be just perfect.
0: Well, um, and one one final thing I wanted to ask you about Skyhorse. So for people who publish through you, you know, when you have so many, are you putting marketing and PR and all of this stuff behind it? Is it dependent on the author? I know when I did books with Harper, it was very much incumbent upon me to do a lot of that work. Um, where yeah. where does Skyhorse stand with that?
1: Yeah, so I kind of want to publish people who care about selling their own books. Yeah. So I so I think that the age of kind of like you you write a book and you hand it off to a to a publisher and and then you know call call in six months later and say is it a bestseller yet (laughs) you know that that's totally gone you know that i mean I'm, i'm not sure that there ever was a time like like that but but in any case you know now i think it's a real partnership and and what the publishing company can do is is help you leverage whatever assets you you have so you know you know if you have a great mailing list then what's the right letter to send to those people because if you send the wrong letter nothing happens. Yeah. And if and if you don't have click throughs in the letter to buy the book, so you know, what, what are the best practices, and I would say that even in a one page letter, there should be something like six to eight click throughs to buy the book, you know, you should send send them to a website uh, that that maybe is is the publishing company web website, send them to Amazon, but also give them a choice between Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you know, various other places, um, so I so I think doing it like that and, and having some of them be on keywords, but then having two or three places where it says "click here to buy the book," you know that that those kinds of things are things that publishing companies can help you with and and should help you with, and and the same is true even of say Twitter. You know I've I've had people tweet about a book who had fifty million followers and nothing happened because they say something like. Um, my friend so-and-so wrote this amazing book, um, but the person is a is a world-famous personality who maybe, you know, people like the guy because he's good-looking. Right. Um, so those 50 million people are, are not going to be book buyers. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're not going to be book buyers for a specific book. Yeah. You know, because the followers are just people who are following the person you know, because of their looks or their fame or or something, it, it's not targeted. So, you know, we we had that case once where where we published uh, an environmental book that was a really serious book, and the person who had fifty million followers uh, tweeted that it was a great great book and that people ought to read it. And 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 it was it was about a month after the publication date, and I don't think the book sold twenty copies in that week yeah. with fifty million people. You know, got this this tweet. But if but if you have a hundred thousand Twitter followers and it's about, you know, um uh let's say it's about the rainforest and you know the you know all of your Twitter followers follow what's going on in the Amazon and they're really concerned with Brazil and they're following the election in Brazil and they're concerned about it, and you're coming out with a Protect the Rainforest manifesto, you know, those 100,000 people, that, that's different than Joe Rogan or some famous person's 50 million people. That's 100,000 people who care. Yeah. And and, there, and there's no telling what percentage of those people you can get. I mean, if it's a good enough book by the right person, really targeted and timed well, you know, it, it, it could be 20,000 people out of that 100,000.
0: Yeah, person. yeah. Well, this has been very illuminating. I hope you've had fun. Um, Definitely. And so, Tony, thank you so so much. Um, to find out more, like people should go to Skyhorse website. Where should they go?
1: Yeah, they can go to skyhorsepublishing.com.
0: Well, thank you and so much. Is there anything that you wanted to add that I didn't ask you?
1: I would like you to tell tell me about what you do, <laughs> but maybe that doesn't have to be uh, on the podcast. <laughs>
0: These people are sick of it. No, they love me to death. We'll stop it and then I'll tell you everything. Um, Thanks you guys, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for joining me this week on Entrepreneur Publishing Academy with Anna David. For more info about the show, go to entrepreneurpublishing.academy where you can get links to show notes and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, and all the other places. Speaking of those places, if you got anything out of this show, I can't tell you how much I'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. And please don't forget you can tell an author or entrepreneur friend about the show. Another forget-me-not, my company Legacy Launchpad Publishing is available to help industry leaders and those with stories to share at any stage in their publishing journeys, whether that's writing, editing, or publishing. Just go to LegacyLaunchpadPub.com to find out more and be sure to tune in next week for Bull well, next week's episode. You know if you subscribe you never have to worry about missing.